Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders Bristol and recorded at the Burst Radio Studios. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Tom and I spoke with Dr. Jason Yon, an electromechanical engineer and researcher at the university who works to build better, faster motors for electric cars, as well as innovative renewable energy microgrids for isolated communities. Jason is also in charge of the Bristol University electric racing team. As always, we started by asking him to introduce himself and talk about how he got where he is today. Hi there, my name's Jason. Uh, I am a lecturer in uh, the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Bristol. Uh, I um, Actually, I grew up on a small island called St. Helena, which is a British overseas territory in the middle of the South Atlantic. It's very small, uh, 47 square miles, uh, uh, 4,000 people, so really uh, really quite a small place, a bit sunnier than Bristol. Uh, I came to Bristol in 2002 as an undergraduate. I studied a degree called Avionic Systems Engineering, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and I graduated from that and then decided to stay at Bristol and do a PhD uh, in aerospace electrical systems. And then since then I've worked in, in various sort of research and teaching posts and uh, I became a lecturer earlier this year. Uh, one of the other jobs I have is I look after our, our formula student team and I am their, their faculty advisor and electrical systems advisor. Cool, so do you mind telling us a bit more about maybe your job as an electromechanical engineer or maybe formula student? Okay, so um, so my, my, my job title is lecturer in electromechanical systems. And uh, I, I decided that that sort of best described me because it, it encompassed the things that I, I tend to do in my research. So I, I'm, a, I'm a systems engineer because that's what my, my undergraduate degree was. Uh, and I work kind of at the boundary between electrical systems and mechanical systems. Uh, I've always been interested in, in power and energy and uh, and, and the, the sort of natural extension to that for me was, was to work with electric motors and generators and, and that's kind of the, the quintessential electromechanical component uh, from, from my perspective. Uh, my research has either been uh, looking at aerospace power systems which included big motors and generators uh, or automotive traction systems, again big motors, batteries, power controllers. Uh, or uh, increasingly now renewable energy, and much the same same themes through all of that. Uh, with Formula Student, I um, I became the faculty advisor for the Formula Student team uh, two and a half years ago now. Time flies, and um, and that's an electric uh, uh, team. So they they right from the start they've been building an electric car, and I've been able to sort of try and apply the skills I've developed over my research career uh, to um, to try and help them build a decent electric car safely. Great, so there's obviously a lot going on there. So we'll talk briefly about your kind of active academic research at the moment. So you say a lot of what you do is on electric motors and generators. So that's, I guess this is a technology that's been around for a while. It's, it's quite an established technology. What are the big problems in this field at the moment? What, what do you try and solve on, on a daily basis? And, and yeah, how, how's it going to help in the future? So yeah, you're, you're quite right. Uh, electric motors have been around for, for well, 100 years or more now. Um, but for for a long time, the technology essentially plateaued. We kept using the same types of motors. Uh, in the sort of 80s and 90s, a new class of um, of, uh, of transistors came along that allowed us to make uh, make very different power converters to make electricity of different frequencies and different voltages uh, very efficiently, and that opened up a, a whole new world of potential motor technology. 
And, um, and that's become really important over the last decade or so as we've started looking uh, for electric cars and, and renewable energy and, and also uh, more electric aircraft. Uh, the, the key now is trying to make motors much lighter than they used to be or much more efficient than they used to be. Uh, and that involves really working at the boundary between electrical and mechanical engineering. So a, a lot of what I do sort of starts to sound a bit like material science, uh, but I also do a lot that that is you know, classical electromagnetics. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's one of the nice things about working with, with motors. Um, I also do other uh, things that are, are a bit surprising, but, but sort of use the same skill set. So I, I have a project with uh, Team GB Cycling. Uh, working on, on optimizing bicycle chains and, and my bit of that is how to test bicycle chains so a lot of the technology that I would use to test an electric motor is equally applicable to testing a bicycle chain so that's quite good fun and gives you a sort of broad spectrum of applications to to focus on. Yeah fantastic that's an amazing kind of group of people to be working with because obviously our cycling teams have been incredibly successful I'm sure that's at least in part due to the amazing engineering going on. A little bit yeah. <laughs> The cycling yeah. teams are nice, um, a, a nice uh, sort of case of, of collaborative engineering. Really, it, it it's a slightly contentious uh, point with with some people, but it's um, it, it's all about these marginal gains. And if we can give them that that sort of tiny marginal improvement by helping them choose a better chain drive system, uh, then you know when you're looking at finishing uh, margins of, of sort of centimeters, you know, a lot of these races come down to a photo yeah. finish. That fraction of a percent improvement in efficiency is what gives you that centimeter uh, either before or after um, first or second place in an Olympic race so yeah fingers crossed we helped a bit yeah amazing that's really definitely amazing because in the large scheme of things if you look at like a millisecond you don't think so much of it like in daily life but in, in the Olympics it could mean like a difference between a gold or a silver medal so um in Formula Student, how does that come into play? How are you improving the efficiency of electrical um, well, and stuff? I suppose the, the key thing really is exposing students to electric vehicle technology. Mm -hmm. um, Formula Student is, a, is a, at Bristol, Bristol Electric Racing is a very new team. And, uh, and as a new team, you have to start sort of quite conservative in terms of mm. just getting something working. Yeah. So, you know, we're not using the world's most efficient drivetrain at the moment. But, but the, the key at this stage is to build a platform that allows us to develop that. And there's a number of things that, that sort of in the future we, we can do in, in terms of sort of running projects where students build uh, their own power converters, their own motors, or where we try and sort of uh, use the formula student as a, as a design case for a, for a high-performance motor or something like that. Um, but, but the key really is to educate a, a group of people on electrical systems that are you know, inherently more efficient than some of the mechanical things we're replacing. Um, you know, your, your average internal combustion engine is 30% efficient on a good day when going downhill. Um, our electric motor in the Formula Student car is sort of above 90% efficient. Wow. So even though it's not necessarily the best motor in the world, it's uh, it's substantially better than the internal combustion engine technology that we're uh, we're moving away from. Yeah. So briefly, we'll better explain what Formula Student actually is. So as far as, as far as I'm aware, I've not been involved myself. It's teams of um, university students from around the country. Is it also around the world? As it well? is around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the uh, there's a a series of different events that all sort of come under the umbrella of either Formula Student or Formula SAE, which is the the American version. Mm -hmm. So there's there's competitions all over the world. 
the UK event is run by the Institution of Mechanical Engineers and is held every year uh, at, at Silverstone, so um, the, the racetrack that uh, mm -hmm. has the British Grand Prix at the moment. And, um, and yeah, so uh, student teams design, build, and, and uh, compete in, in race cars uh, over a period of about four days. Um, one of the really nice things about the UK competition is it's one of the only, well, actually, it's the only one that we can find. Uh, it's the only motorsport competition where petrol cars and electric cars compete in the same category. So there's no separate class for electrical and separate class for petrol. They actually compete head to head. And uh, over the past several years, when we've had uh, some of the good European teams show up, the uh, the electric cars have really sort of performed very, very well and, and usually win. Wow. Um, so. Yeah, the last year was a bit of an anomaly because some of the top European teams weren't able to attend. But um, yeah, it, it's quite a nice showcase for electric cars. And I've seen videos of uh, of Teslas, I think, just massively outstripping racing, mm. like sports cars and racing cars. So there's something really amazing about electric vehicle technology that we are only just starting to harness with even like the performance side of things. Yeah. So, so in terms of performance, uh, without getting too technical, electric motors allow you to get to the maximum torque right from zero speed. Whereas if you imagine if you were in a car, uh, you, you have to do a, a racing start where you get your revs really, really high and you, you mm. drop the clutch and you, your wheel spin is all quite aggressive and, and sort of not particularly well, um, by not a particularly efficient process again. With an electric motor, it will give you as much torque as you ask for right from zero speed uh, up to its, wherever that, that limit uh, is. Um, and... Um, and so you can get really, really impressive performance out of an electric car. The challenge for electric cars at the moment is still range. Um, and that comes down to just how much energy you can get into a given mass of batteries compared to how much energy you can get into a given mass of petrol. And to, just to put some numbers to it, petrol has a specific energy, so energy per unit mass of so 39 megajoules per kilogram, whereas batteries are less than one megajoule per kilogram. So you, you, you really need to use that one megajoule per mm. kilogram very very effectively uh, if you're going to compete with petrol as, a, as an energy storage medium which has got so much more energy for each kilo mm. so that's the the big challenge facing electric yes. cars at the moment yeah. is building the right battery really it, it's building the right battery but also making the most of every joule that you've got on board and and also sort of working to try and make the whole car uh, a more effective system. So, uh, you know, some of the car companies are focusing on on making electric cars effective by trying to just make the car a lot lighter. Um, and and if you do that, then you're wasting less energy accelerating and decelerating and, and things like that. So it's a bit of a, a sort of coupled approach. The the chemists are working and trying to make better battery technology. And there's some interesting stuff around the corner there. Um, but uh, from my point of view, as an electrical engineer or an electromechanical engineer. Uh, I want to make the drivetrain as efficient as possible. I want to lose as little energy as I possibly can between those battery terminals and the road. In terms of the batteries, aren't there difficulties in disposing of them once they're sort of finished? There are. I mean, the so cars generally require batteries that are um, essentially in tip-top condition. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there are things that they are still perfectly useful for when they've you know, lost that, that mm -hmm. very... Uh, top end of their performance. Um, I I know that people are looking at life cycle uh, plans for batteries. So you might have a battery that you use in a car for a while, and then when it's kind of not performing very well there, 
you take it and you put it into a, an energy storage system in your home where it doesn't matter if it's a bit bigger than you know it would be in a car uh, so so there are ways to sort of extend the life of batteries so i guess going back um to the bristol electric racing and formula student in general why would you you say it's a great idea to get involved in this sort of thing i know jade you actually are involved in the electric racing team this year what can students gain from this kind of practical projects that you wouldn't necessarily get just from your like regular degree studies um well you, you've answered it really practical um <laughs> it, it, there, there isn't really anything else that that's kind of quite so big in terms of a, a practical project it, it's full scale you are building a, a, a full-size race car for those who haven't seen formula student cars they're they're sort of bigger than go-karts but slightly smaller than a Formula Ford car, and uh, apologies if people don't know what a Formula Ford car is, but uh, what's the size of our, our car, Jade? It's got a, a <laughs> track. Got a spot there now. How, I can't it's track of about three like, meters, so it's yeah, quite a it's long quite car. Cool. So that's the, um, sorry, not track, wheelbase. That's the, the distance between the, the front and rear wheel. So it's not a small thing. You know, it's 80 kilowatts of power. So you know, it's, it's, uh, it's quite an impressive thing to be working on as a student. I think there's a lot of opportunities to get involved in the in the design side of things that not everyone really takes. And, and when you yeah. graduate without these kinds of practical skills and getting involved in this kind of big big scale project, I'm sure it puts you at a disadvantage. I think yeah. So you, you've kind of made the other point there. It's a large it's a large scale project and there's a multidisciplinary project. You you're not just working with other mechanical engineers or other electrical engineers. You're working across disciplines. You have to to make an electric car. Uh, we we wouldn't be able to do it without either mechanical or electrical people and um and you learn a whole new vocabulary as a result of that um you you just learn what the the sort of various requirements of the different systems are it it sort of almost by osmosis makes you a good systems engineer by mm. being part of that multidisciplinary team so since you've been part of this team for about two and a half years now what do you think have been the biggest challenges and the biggest successes so far Biggest so the the first year we took uh, we took the team to competition we entered what's called class two, uh, which is the design only competition. So as well as sort of being assessed on your car's performance, you have to submit a, a design portfolio. You have to make a, a business case. It's quite funny, really. It's like a fake dragon den thing where you have to pitch your car as though you were building a thousand, I think, uh, of them for for weekend track day use. And so you, know, you have to show up in a suit and, and uh, make a business pitch. Uh, so we, we entered class two in our first year and we came second. And that was a really, really big achievement for the team. And, um, and yeah, the reason we came second is because Bristol students are analytically very, very strong. And we're able to produce really good design justifications for what we do. Um, as with the big challenge following on from that is trying to turn that analytical uh, strength and that, that sort of success in terms of producing a good design case uh, into a working car and um, it, it's very important that this is a student-led thing and the students are learning from this and really driving that that learning uh, it's not the the difference between formula student at least the way we've implemented it at Bristol and a lot of the rest of the material that students are taught is it's very much self-directed it's get in there do the work find the problem find solutions to the problem you know with appropriate support and you learn so much more by going through that process. But I, so I, I guess in answer, the, the, the biggest challenge has also been the, the thing that really is the key benefit of Formula Student is, is, is trying to figure out how to match analytical capability to practical uh, outcomes. Would you say that's perhaps a weakness of the Bristol Student? We're great technically, but maybe not 
super practical? Or? I, I wouldn't use the word weakness. I mean, it's it's what we focus on. Isn't yeah. It? You know, we're, we're we're very strong with engineering science. It's it's not really. I don't think describing it as weakness is, is correct. Yeah. I think it's it's just something that you know, to be a successful formula student team, we need to to add that in as well. What else would you say over the next maybe five, ten, uh, fifteen years? Even we really need to work on. And as an electromechanical engineer, the problems you need to solve to make electric vehicles totally ubiquitous. So I think one of the other big challenges uh, is going to be around just supplying that energy and and sort of. Uh, what challenges and what opportunities does having that uh, that number of cars connected to the national grid? Uh, well, what does that bring? We don't currently have the capacity in the grid to to provide all of the energy that we currently use for transport electrically. So, so the grid is going to have to grow uh, as a result of that. And I think when when sort of uh, we're thinking about renewable energy research, there is very much a parallel stream of thought that goes you know, along thinking about electric cars and, and what what implications and what, what potential benefits. So one of the potential benefits is you, you've got this, this storage that's attached to your, your grid um, in, in fault conditions where you've got something that's gone wrong nearby or whatever. That, that storage can be used to help to supplement the grid. Now, there are, there are certainly people who say, well, that's a very bad thing to do to a car battery. I mean, we were talking earlier about how you want car batteries to be in tip-top condition. If you start pulling energy in and out of them to support the national grid, then you're going to, to reduce the lifetime of that battery. But, but there is a balance to be struck there, and, and I think there'll be sort of uh, competing thoughts. There's, there's a, a field called vehicle-to-grid um, uh, energy storage, and, and so that, that's really quite interesting. Um, but yeah, how do we supply the energy and what opportunities does having all of that energy storage attached to households bring? Of course, there's the infrastructure challenge there as well. Most of us park our cars on the street, uh, so that's going to be interesting. What what charging infrastructure are we actually looking at? Not so much my field, but something that um, is certainly going to be yeah, a big change over the next uh, couple of decades. So it's very clear that power generation is going to be a huge problem for the future. So... Um, We've read that you've been quite interested in microgrids, so would you mind telling us a bit more about your research? In I can I can tell you what I, kn I know about microgrids, so I'm, I'm not going to steal my colleague's thunder here. I work with a, a chap <laughs> called Sam Williams, uh, Sam Williamson, sorry, and um, uh, he's been studying microgrids uh, since his PhD, uh, possibly before, and um, and I've been working with him on a uh, sort of a I guess a, a renewable energy network, for, for want of a better word, um, where we're trying to look at various various projects and various things that we can do around renewable energy. And microgrids is a key one. Um, so so essentially, the, the point of a microgrid is, is that um, it, it moves us away from this massive uh, infrastructure system that we've got, say, in the UK or Western Europe at the moment, where you've got these, uh, these huge power lines that span up and down the country. The focus is much more on, on small networks, uh, so local generation, local usage. Essentially, the, at a very basic level, if you can generate your energy as close as possible to where you want to use your energy and in an appropriate form, an appropriate shape, whether it be AC, DC or high voltage, low voltage, you, you have much lower transmission losses. You don't waste energy just moving it from one place to the other. You also have more redundancy. So if, if you have a source that goes out, it's, it's only a small source, so it's unlikely to have a huge impact on the whole grid. Um, the the challenges uh, having all of these small sources requires a lot of uh, sort of novel control to try and keep everything balanced and keep everything stable. We're we're used to electricity just being 
on all the time, uh, sort of always having this stable frequency, stable voltage. And it's it's very sort of difficult to imagine that as a society we would expect or accept anything less. Um, so that's the really interesting thing with microgrids. Plenty of potential benefits, but lots of research challenges to try and uh, make them work. Um, one of the interesting aspects of, of our, our project or our group of projects uh, is we, we are working with South African universities on this. And um, and it, it's, it's quite interesting because Africa does not have this sort of massive continental grid. There is a sub-Saharan Africa has a very, very low uh, electrification rate. Um, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. But um, they are unlikely to install a, um, a national grid like the sort that we have in Europe. Um, it just it just doesn't make sense. So what, what they're going to probably do is start looking at microgrid technology at a much faster rate than we will in you know, the Western world or, or in the UK. Um, in much the same way that they adopted mobile phone technology without going via landlines. Yeah. It didn't so make sense. Is yeah, exactly. Leapfrogging, yeah. exactly. Um, so, so yeah, working with South African universities, and this is really quite interesting because they're, they're going to very much be at the cutting edge. So uh, we can't really afford not to watch what Africa is doing around renewable energy at the moment. And um, we're also looking at what happens in small islands. Uh, islands are challenging because islands you know, inherently don't have this huge national grid. If you can make a stable uh, electrical network from renewable energy on a small island, then you can learn quite a lot from that process that can then be applied to uh, to larger nations like the UK or, or the rest of Europe. I think I, I've read that you're planning on working on a project in that very area yourself. Could you talk about what, what your aim is here? And, yes, yeah, I can. Yes, so we, um, we are working on, on St. Helena, which is where I grew up, and uh, they, they recently had a, an international conference, first international conference on the island ever. Which, which was made possible by the fact that they, they now have an airport, which they didn't have when I was a child. And, um, and yeah, we, we're going to... So they have an ambitious target to go 100% renewable by 2022. Um, and what we're going to do is we, we, we're basically going to, to watch and learn from, from that process. We're going to try and uh, study the grid before, uh, sort of see what the, the particular challenges and, and characteristics of the grid are on the island before that. Uh, and then the same afterwards, uh, but not just the electrical grid. We're trying to think about energy holistically here. So we're also trying to think about energy used for transportation uh, and sort of other forms of energy used for, for heating, so burning biomass, wood, whatever the case may be. Um, it's quite interesting when you sort of have a, a, a sort of model of a, a community like that to, um, to think about energy from first principles. Energy does not equal electricity. It's just what we've become used to thinking. In, in the Western world. Um, and the same with storage does not equal batteries. There, there are other ways to store energy. Um, so there, there's lots of really interesting opportunities and, and lots of really interesting things that happen when people transition to renewable energy that, that sort of give you, uh, give you interesting things to do research on. So I guess it's, it's quite obvious, but why is St. Helena such a great case study for this kind of project? Is it because it is so small and you can kind of capture every single variable, which you couldn't possibly do in the UK. Yeah, yeah, it, it's an island. So uh, we, when we gave our presentation to the uh, to the conference, we had a, a slide with four um, with uh, four items on it. It's a, it, it is an island, and it, it's, a, it's a proper island in that it doesn't have a connection to the mainland grid. Uh, there are a few islands around Europe that you know, have uh, more than 100% renewable. They actually are you know, massive net, net exporters of energy. But the fact that they have that cable linking them to the mainland uh, takes away one of the key challenges of dealing with renewable energy, i.e. producing just the right amount. 
uh, or being able to store it. Um, and then it, the fact that it's got this ambition to go renewable and it is sort of actively pursuing that means that things mm. will uh, things will happen there. Um, so it, it's uh, it's right in that sense. It, it, also, in terms of timing, the the sort of airport development is is not sort of at all incidental to this. It, it's now possible to do renewable energy research there because you can get on and off the island uh, without having to sit on a boat for five days. Um, and uh, they're installing a, a fiber optic link to the island in the not too distant future, which opens up huge possibilities in terms of data transfer if you are sort of trying to monitor a system. Um, and, and yeah, you're back to your point, it's the right scale. Uh, it's a bounded system and it's a bounded system that's a size that you can really get a good idea of what's going on. Um, but it, it's it's big enough that there are lessons that you can learn from it. You can extrapolate from it. I think there there are limits to how much you can extrapolate from, say, a community of 100. Um, but you know, a community of 4,000 uh, is starting to sound like you've got natural stochastic processes, you know, statistical variation in, in usage and stuff like that. Do you think it's going to be possible, realistically possible, to make the island completely reliant on renewables uh, in four years? Yes, it is, and and again, the reason it's possible is because it's, it's small. So small. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, it it it's very very likely that that this will will happen, or at least almost happen, happen to a large enough extent that that you can you can do a really useful case study from it. Mm -hmm. So, if we take it back to the UK, would it would microgrids ever really find an application here, or would other sorts of renewable energy? Be more um, I, I suspect that the UK will. There's a lot of inertia in systems like like our national grid. It, it would take huge amounts of investment to fundamentally change things, and uh, and the UK does have some sort of uh, fairly good resources like uh, uh, offshore wind that that sort of are increasingly uh, being used to support the national grid. Um, I think with with all renewable energy sources, though they're, they're not without cost. You know, there's and there's all sorts of debates that happen around here. There's there is visual impact of, of renewable energy sources. There is environmental impact. You know, wind turbines do affect birds, and solar panels do block out the light on everything that's below that. Uh, ultimately, the the challenge is to try and trade these off and find the the best overall balance. Uh, for our energy system. But yeah, in terms of, of microgrids, possibly in rural areas, uh, you'd, you'd see sort of small-scale systems uh, starting up and then trying to uh, uh, sort of link up and eventually link to the national grid. But microgrids doesn't preclude having a national grid, so you mm. can have sort of energy transfer via the, the larger grid. So, and we'll see. I think there's, there's just possibly a bit less pressure a bit less necessity for it here at the moment, which is again why I think watching Africa is going to be really quite interesting because they need electrification and then it's it's a very sensible way for them to achieve electrification. It sounds like in a way that the future of energy is just significantly more complex than the present or even, or the past. The, like the, the, the past is big coal-fired power plants all distributed in, out in one direction, yeah. but the future will require a lot more science. No, the, the, the future is hugely more complex, which is again why sort of these these things like motors and generators all of a sudden are, are back in vogue in terms of research areas because we're having to think about them much more carefully and think about sort of slightly different topologies or slightly different technologies uh, to achieve this, this sort of complex system. And the same applies for aircraft, the same applies for cars. So we talked about how the future might look in, in the UK and in smaller currently developing countries as well. So are you confident that we'll be able to make the changes that, that we need to make really for, for the sake of the climate and for the sake of um, 
international development as well? Are you confident that we as, a, as engineers can can implement all this complex, complex stuff? That is a big question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I, it's it's a very difficult question to answer. It, it, I, I guess what I meant to do is say, yes, I am, and, and sort of uh, try and rouse uh, some sort of enthusiasm from, from people who are thinking, oh, is this worth it? Regardless of which which angle you come at this from, renewable energy, uh, electric cars, they they are all worthwhile um, pursuits. Um, I hope so. Let's let's answer it that way. I I hope that we we have that we have what it takes. I guess to to make it happen. I I do think though that um, uh, there will be aspects of this where um, solutions will come from unexpected places. Again, to the back to to Africa um, uh, with the example of, of, sort of grid technology. Um, again, islands uh, present a very interesting sort of use case for electric cars because, again, they're relatively bounded systems. You don't have this range anxiety problem. Um, and I think other technologies will start to kind of interplay with energy. Um, uh, when we were sort of having a chat prior to recording, we were talking about um, driverless cars. Uh, not my field at all, but, but driverless cars all of a sudden open up the possibility of... Uh, of sort of better management of uh, that that energy storage problem within cars and and also uh, cars operating more efficiently because you're not relying on a human to decide how much throttle pedal to use. Uh, humans are very bad at, at driving efficiently, uh, whereas machines are much much better at it. So I, I think a lot of technology will come together. Uh, some of it will be surprising. Things like artificial intelligence might start to to have a role, but. As an engineer, you will have more of a positive impact uh, than than sort of many other fields in terms of trying to trying to do this, trying to push this forward. That's a really interesting idea that you touch touch upon. That maybe the biggest innovations of the next several decades won't come from the expected places. They'll come from they'll come from the countries that typically have not been the centres of development in in the past, purely because they're the ones facing the most pressing problems and. Mm. They don't have as much inertia, like you said. Necessity is the mother of invention. But I think also technology is changing at a pace that is almost unimaginable. You know, the, the, the cliche that is often uh, uh, sort of uh, presented to, to school children now is, is the job you're going to be doing hasn't been invented yet. And that, that really is quite true. You know, technology uh, is evolving at a faster rate than it ever has before. So, uh, yeah, it's an exciting time to, to I guess be alive and then be an engineer. Um, would you say that there's a sort of public indifference to issues of sustainability and power generation on the whole? And if you say so, then what can we do as engineers to change that? I don't know. I, I'm sort of, I, I'm loath to, to say that the public are indifferent to it. I think you know, most people have fairly busy, fairly stressful lives and, um, <laughs> and actually, you know, if you, if you spend your entire life worried about everything, um, you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll struggle to be at all balanced. But um, I think, again, there's just not that pressure uh, in, in places like the UK, like the US, uh, to, to change behaviour. Energy is still sort of relatively cheap. Is it fair to suggest that actually if we made energy more expensive, that would force people to change their habits? Uh, well, yeah. In terms of the economics or the, the, the those mechanisms, yes, it probably would. But again, I'm not sure that 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 kind of negative pressure is necessarily the right way to go. Um, making people more aware of things, I think um, education, getting more kids involved in, in engineering, teaching sort of kids in school about uh, these sorts of emerging technologies, 
but also sort of making the technology relevant and fun as well without necessarily just making it about uh, I suppose a moral or ethical question I, I personally come at this because I find the technology really quite interesting and the fact that I'm you know, doing some good by getting more electric cars on the road is uh, is, is, is brilliant um, but uh, people are motivated by different things and I think uh, trying to to make sure that you, you sort of tell people actually the technology is really good fun and really exciting. I think your point at the beginning about the performance benefits of electric cars as well, that's quite interesting. You know, it, it, electric cars weren't originally sold to us as being able to accelerate faster than a petrol car. It was Elon Musk who brought that along. Yeah. The net result is a lot more electric cars are now on the road and people now understand that there is a type of car out there that can go fast and can go far. Uh, but the rest of the world was kind of, you know, pushing small, very, very efficient, very compact, gee whiz type cars on us. Uh, other small electric cars are available. Um, so, yeah, bit of a ramble, but in summary, I would suggest we, we motivate people by getting them interested in the technology, while also sort of, uh, trying to stay focused on those, those big picture goals as a society. So yeah, today we talked about a huge range of really interesting and varied and, and complex challenges that engineers are going to have to face in the future to to make the world a, uh, a better place. And it's stuff that you're working on and stuff that hopefully we will be working on in the future. So yeah, th this has been a really great conversation. So thank you, Jason, for coming to speak to us. It's been a thank real you. pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or to find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud. Online. Not on FM. And certainly not on digital. This is Burst Radio. Bristol University's radio station. Radio station. Radio station. Radio station.